My daughter Emma turned 12 back in October, and on the morning of her birthday, I got her up early. We went to Cracker Barrel for breakfast, and over pancakes, I handed her her gift, her, her gift from me. It was the gift that she most wanted for her 12-year-old birthday. It was two tickets to the Harlem Globetrotters basketball game. She was so excited. She opened that envelope. She looked at the tickets. She flew from her chair into my lap, hugged my neck so hard. I thought I was going to have to call 911. I mean, she would not let go. So excited about going to the Globetrotters game. Last Friday night was the game. We went, I picked her up. We went downtown Nashville Municipal Auditorium, the beautiful, glorious place that that building is. And and, uh, we, we were so excited. She was just giddy all the way down twice. I I, uh, I started to tell her something about the Globetrotters. You know, I was kind of remembering from when I was about her age. I started to tell her something. She'd be like, la, 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 no, 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 no. I don't want to hear anything. No, I just, I want to experience it for myself. So I shut up and we drove and, and uh, we got there. We parked. She grabbed my hand tight. We walked so fast into that gym. We, we walked to our seats. And from the minute that we got to our seats and until the minute we left the building, Emma was totally captivated. I'm talking that whole night just way far exceeded her expectations. We got there an hour early. She made us get there an hour early. We, we got to the door. The door was still locked. We were, <laughs> we were early. We got in the door. We went in. She, we bought a basketball, blue, blue and red and white. And she's dribbling that basketball right next to the court for that whole hour, right up until they kicked her off for the game. We sat in an area that happened to be near the player's entrance and so when the players came in before the game, Emma runs down there. She's high-fiving every player. The players go out at halftime. She's back down there high-fiving and coming in halftime again. You know, after the game, it's like, you know, she's just all, all in. And every behind the back pass, she's ooing and on. And every joke, she's totally cracked up, you know. And every time they dunk, you know, if you've been to Harlem Globetrotters, you can kind of anticipate these dunks. There's these huge setups, you know, for the big dunk. And Every time they dunk, she, she would literally, she'd sit right next to me, to my left, and she would literally, she'd start standing up in her chair, start standing up, dunk would happen, boom! She'd slam her chair down, shaking me and the whole row, cheering like crazy. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I, honestly, this is the truth. I, I've never seen her quite like this. It was awesome, by the way, just totally awesome. You know, when, when I gave her those tickets back at Cracker Barrel, um, it was what she wanted. It was exactly what she wanted, but she had no idea what all came with admission. No idea what all she would see, no idea what all she would feel, no idea what all she would experience, no idea what all was hers to have and to enjoy and and to celebrate. And I know what that's like. I went when I was about her age and I, I experienced it in exactly the same way. What What she experienced actually was far greater than what she thought she had, even as good as that was in that moment. You know, when when we open to Ephesians chapter 1, we see this same kind of exuberance in Paul's words. He can't contain himself. It just leaps off the page. He gushes. He rejoices. He doesn't take a breath at the thought of every spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. It's actually one long sentence in the Greek, verses 3 to 14, one long sentence in the Greek that's like the grand finale of a fireworks display, one spectacular, glorious explosion after another. That's what this is like. And as he goes, 
soul that we have in Christ, as he does that, it gets right to the essence of all that we do have and all that we are in Jesus Christ. And it's far greater than we could have ever imagined. Far greater. I want you to take your Bible out and open it to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to kind of frame this up for us a little bit. This long sentence begins in verse 3. As I said, it ends in verse 14. It's a little bit difficult to punctuate in English. You'll, you'll see that there are six uh, shorter verses in, in English. I mean, uh, shorter sentences with punctuation periods in, in English. It's a bit difficult there. So I, I want to frame it up this way. I think this might be helpful to look at this long line of spiritual blessings in, in three sections. And they're in three sections for two reasons. One, that each of these sections ends with the same refrain. So there's a bit of a summary statement at the end. And two, that if they describe the unique work of each of the three persons of the Trinity, that verses four through six describe the work of the Father. That's where Michael was last week. He taught those verses last week. We'll pick up there in just a minute. Verses seven through 12 are the spiritual blessings that are made available to us through the work of the Son. I'll be in verses 7 through 10. Really, I'm going to spend almost all of my time in verses 7 and 8. And then the last section is verses 13 and 14. That is the spiritual blessings that are made available to us through the work of the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's where Lloyd will pick up and and teach next week. So this framework is here for us. It helps us to see the breakdown of it. And I want us to remember this even as we go into it. You know, everything that's listed here in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing that is ours is ours in Christ, right? It's all of chapter one. It's ours in Christ. It's for those who are unified with Christ. It's for those who have placed their faith in Christ. It's really the, the theme of the whole book. I, I'm just making this statement by way of framework that, that all that is ours in Christ is actually made available through each of the three persons of the Trinity. All ours in Christ made available by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So I'm going to review briefly where Michael was last week, the work of the Father, and then we'll look more intently, more uniquely at the, in fact, unique work of the Son on our behalf, okay? I'll pick it up with me in, in verse 3 and follow along just as I read. Verse 3 is, is the introduction to the text, and then verse 4 picks up the work of the Father. Here's verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, here's the work of the Father. Just as he chose us, that is the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How? according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I mentioned that each of these sections ends with a common refrain. That's it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at verse 12, end of it. To the praise of his glory. Verse 14, end of it. To the praise of his glory. This section ends the same way. And this section about the work of the Father, Michael said it last week, is the work of election. 
That is the act of God before creation to save some, not on the basis of any merit of their own, but on his good and sovereign purpose. That that is the work of election. He chooses, he predestines to adoption. And last week, Michael made six very clear, very helpful observations about the doctrine of election right here from this text. And one of the observations that Michael made last week is that the doctrine of election has nothing to do with what we do, only to do with what God has done, everything to do with what God has done. In other words, election is not conditional, not conditional upon us. It is not contingent in any way, shape, or form on you and me. I I grew up in an environment where, where that was flipped where what was emphasized, at least what stuck with me, was was that God chose in a conditional kind of a way. It was more of a conditional relationship with God, not unconditional as Paul teaches here, but conditional. And what I mean by that is that that God might choose me if I prove myself worthy of his choosing, if I was acceptable to him, if I was good enough, if I obeyed well enough. I didn't study passages like Ephesians 1 or the others like it in the New Testament. It wasn't until college and after that I began to to see the whole counsel of God's word as it relates to his plan for salvation. And as I began to see passages like this and couple them with the others that I knew that the beauty of election, it was just like, wow, it was just, it was beautiful to me. It, it, It really was. I saw for the first time clearly that I was truly dead in my sin, unable to save myself. Nothing that I could ever do to change that. That resonated deeply with a person who had spent their whole life trying to prove their worth, trying to prove myself acceptable or good enough for God. That resonated deeply. And when I learned that not only was I dead in my sin, but in spite of my sin, God still pursued me. God still loved me. God still made a way for me. God chose me. God adopted me as his son. It it was like freedom for the first time. I knew way down deep in my heart, I knew that all that I was trying to do to show God my worth, I knew it didn't measure up. So I read this, I study this and it's freedom. See, we actually think that freedom comes with the ability to go and to choose and to, and to live independent and to move toward God like I can prove. We think that's where freedom is. It's not. That's slavery. That's bondage. Freedom is found when we understand that we are actually dead in our sin and God still pursued us anyway. And, and God still chose us. I'm, now I'm free. Overcome with gratitude. Just, oh my gosh, I, I remember feeling like, This is awakened, you know, awakened to the depth of his infinite grace. If I am, in fact, that sinful and he still engaged me, he still say, oh, the infinite amount of his grace in my life. For me, it was the moment that awakened me, my zeal, my passion for the church. My my course in life began to alter because of this glorious truth in the other's like it. I wanted to share with the church how great my God is, how great our 
God is. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that our decisions, our choices don't matter. Please don't hear that. I think they matter huge. I I absolutely think they matter huge. I'm just saying that I was grateful to see and understand God's choice of me as well. Okay? The Father's work is the work of election. We actually added some resources to the website this week. We've got an image I'm going to throw up here just so you can see what the page looks like. There are study guides there. A, a, a reading by Nan Gurley is there. And then some, down there at the bottom, some additional reading for you from uh, kind of all sides of the doctrine of election for you to read and study if you would so desire. Okay? The work of election is the Father's work. The work of the Son is redemption. Okay. Father chooses, the son redeems. I'm going to read verses seven through 10, our text where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. And and I'm going to answer three three questions or try to. These are them. What is redemption? Okay. What is redemption? How are we redeemed? That's the second. And then where do we get stuck? What keeps us from seeing the blessing of redemption for all that it is? Okay. What is redemption? How are we redeemed? And where do we get stuck? Look at verses 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. First question, what is redemption? Well, the word means ransom. It's to pay a ransom for the freedom of another. It's ransom. It was used related to the slaves or regarding slaves who were purchased and the person whom they were purchased by could choose to free them. It was a purchase of freedom. So the biblical concept of of redemption is this. You and I are sinners. Like all that have gone before us, we make willful, selfish choices that act against the righteousness of God. In fact, the scripture says we're slaves to our sin. We're in bondage. We are subject to the purposes. We are held hostage to Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, our sin enslaves us and subjects us to the power of the evil one. So you and I are sinners. Second, because of our sin, we need someone to provide redemption. What's the work of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 1? The work of redemption. Jesus Christ provides redemption. In fact, Mark 10, 45 said, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. There's our word. He came to give his life to purchase our freedom and to release us from slavery to sin. Now, this is where it gets interesting. To whom is the ransom paid? See, this is where the the ransom concept, at least in our current day, current culture, doesn't quite fit. The ransom price is not paid to our captor. It's not paid to the one that holds us hostage or enslaved to sin. It's not paid to Satan. It's not paid to sin itself. The, the ransom 
price is paid by God the Son to God the Father. God pays God. Now, why is that? Here's why. See, Satan is not offended by our sin. Our sin is not an act against the righteousness of Satan. Satan's not righteous. Our sin is an act, it's an offense against the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God the Father must be satisfied by the righteousness of God the Son because it is only his perfect righteousness that could pay the debt that we owe. There's a story told that I think is helpful with this concept of redemption. In a city on the shore of a great lake lived a small boy who loved the water and loved sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail at the water's edge. One day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it out far into the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores of the lake in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day, as he was walking through the town, he saw his beautiful boat in a store window. He approached the proprietor, announced his ownership of the boat, only to be told that it was not his. For the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. So the lad set himself to work doing anything and everything until finally he returned to the store with the money. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, you are twice mine now because I made you and I bought you. See, in the same way, we're twice his, created by him from before the foundation of the world and redeemed by him, his work on the cross, okay? How are we redeemed? Second question, well, how is it, in fact, that that redemption is provided for? Look back at verse 7. The answer is pretty clear in the text. Here's what verse 7 says. In him we have redemption, how? Through his blood. The ransom price, so to speak, was the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the substitutionary death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Anywhere in the Bible you see the word blood, it points to death. We know immediately that it's death, but it's also connected to something else. And we see this in verse 7 as well. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Further define the forgiveness of our trespasses or the forgiveness of our sins. And here's the connection. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, his blood, is tied to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the law, the old covenant, by which the Israelite nations for centuries before would satisfy the wrath of God for a period of time, would atone for their sins by what? By killing an animal, sprinkling the blood on the altar. That would satisfy the wrath of God toward their sin for a season. It didn't forgive them once and for all. It covered them. The blood covered them until the next time, typically annually, typically 
for one year. That blood would cover them. Leviticus chapter 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it is in the blood that sins are atoned for. Hebrews 9, New Testament points to the old, speaks of the new. According to the law, Old Testament, all things are cleansed with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is ultimately no forgiveness of sins. Now, because Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin, shedding his righteous blood on the cross for all sins, past, present, and future. Our forgiveness is complete. Draw a line in the sand. The old sacrificial system is over, done, finished through the work of Jesus Christ. No more blood spilled. No, that has been satisfied by the Lamb of God. First Peter chapter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ once and for all, the Lamb of God without blemish or defect. The price has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied and our forgiveness is complete. And all of it, the text says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, here's what's interesting about this phrase to me. That phrase is almost identical to verse six. Look at verse six for just a minute, what Paul says about grace. To the praise of of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. Verse seven, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Did, did Paul forget what he just said? I don't think so, no. I think he said it again because of the magnitude of this blessing. Like the magnitude of the Father's work. Oh my gosh, he chose us. That is rich with grace. Here we are, magnitude of the work of the Son, to redeem us, oh my gosh, lavish, abundant grace. And I think he says it here because our sin, well, we may not see this so clearly, but because our sin is so costly that it required a lavish overabundance of grace. In fact, the word lavish, Paul, Paul uses that same word 45 times in his letters to the church. It's probably his favorite word. Other than, than Christ, Jesus, the name of God, he uses this word as much or more than any other. 45 times. We'll, we'll see it in our study of the book of Ephesians. He uses it every chance he gets. Is, is it overdone? I don't think so. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about that. He says, when it comes to matters of grace, hyperboles are understatement. Paul certainly agrees, and so do we. Last question, where do we get stuck? What keeps us from seeing redemption for all that it is? What keeps us from celebrating it like Paul does? What keeps us from exuberance like Emma showed at the Globetrotters game? Here's what I think. I don't think we're very good at holding spiritual tension. That's what I think. Here's what I mean by that. As it pertains to our sin, I think we swing back and forth between 
two poles. Okay, one, one that says, my sin's not so bad, and therefore redemption is not that great. I'll explain that in a minute. Our sin is not so bad, therefore redemption is not so great. That's one pole. The polar opposite of that is my, my sin is so bad that redemption just can't be that great. That's just too good to be true for me. I, I think depending on our circumstances, times in life, some of us tend more toward one than another, but I think we swing between these poles, just back and forth. Not, not so bad, oh, so bad, there's no chance. Not, not so bad, so bad, there's no chance. I, I think that's where we swing. I do. Maybe it's a little bit easier for us to see this side of the equation. You know, this... It's not all the time for everybody, but I think we've all been here, at least at some point in our life. It's that place where we're so ashamed of what we've done. What we've said, uh, mistakes that we've made, old regrets, um, hurt that we've caused harm, right? Thoughts. It's, it's, it's this place where we're so ashamed of what we've done. We're just wallowing in that shame. When we're here and it goes deep, it gets dark, it's... It's like, you know, we just kind of convince ourselves that we're just unlovable. That can't be true for me. That grace, man, it sounds so good. It's too good to be true. I cannot, there's not enough grace. Lavish overabundance, got to stop somewhere. It stops with me. I I don't qualify, right? That's what we feel like. It's what we experience. You know, it's, it's, it's here that, 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 we, that we find ourselves, it's like everywhere we look, our sin is staring right back at us. We've all been there, okay? Now, this one over here is a bit more subtle. I, I don't think there's anybody in the room that would say, yeah, I don't think my, grace, my, my sin's that bad. I'm, I don't, you know, nobody would just say that. No, we're smarter than that. But I, I'm just suggesting that this is the way that we actually live, that this one shows up in our lives. We act like it's not so bad. Often. Now, I'll share with you two places I think that's true. Of course, it's true in all kinds of ways that we kind of just are dismissive of our, of our sin. We don't want to embrace it for what it really is. There's lots and lots of ways that that's true. I'll, I'll share true that are, are two that are true, at least in my life, and I think they extend beyond me. And, and here, here's what I would say one would be just, just the fact of how hard it is for us to own things to be true about ourselves flaws or faults. It's just hard for us to own that. It's just, it's just I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, not sure. It's just hard to just go, yeah, that's true of me. I think, I think if we were aware of the reality of our sin, just be easier to go, yep, yeah, cop, there it is again, I'm falling. I, it, just be easier to say it's hard for us to own those things. It's hard for us to say that those, those things are true. Somebody comes to me with a bit of a confrontation, a blind spot in my life, some bit of counsel that's a bit more personal and I don't expect it. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, what we got going on here? You know, defensive, dismissive. It's so easy for me to go there. Sometimes I can get upset, mad, push back. And have you looked in the mirror lately? Like, hello, you know, like, no, this is not that big a deal. Making a mountain out of a molehill. Even if we don't say it, we think it, don't we? It's hard, hard for us to own it. Hard for us to be humble and gracious and teachable. Harder still to actually own some of the things that aren't so pretty about ourselves. The other place that I see it in my own life, I think I see it broader than this, is it's connected to the first, but just how slow we can be at times to apologize. 
You know, you'd think if we were really aware of our sin, like this is really true, we'd just be apologizing a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Golly, did, you know, did it again. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. It, it, it's a huge deal, isn't it? Can be, for sure, especially with somebody really close to you. My spouse, hello, you know, family member, somebody close, a close friend. It's, it's difficult. It's like, I, I can't tell you how many times in my head it's like, I know I need to apologize and there's just all this resistance in me. It's so hard to get the words out and mean them. You know, it's like, man, why am I apologizing when what Hillary did was way worse? You know, like, it's just going on in my head. It's the truth. It goes on in your head too. I know it does. So, oh my gosh, it's so, yeah, well, maybe we can just both apologize. Hillary loves that. No, no, it's mine. Mine to own. It's hard for me to own. This is silly, but it's, it's hard for us to own it when a police officer just pulled us over for going 50 in a neighborhood. Hard to own it. Like, I immediately start thinking, hey, how am I going to get out of this? And, you know, let's, I got a sick kid at home. And, yeah, sorry about that mailbox I ran over back there, but it was leaning anyway. It's like, I, you know, no, I, I just, you know, I'm trying to find my way out. I, I don't sieve the officer. I'm, oh, yeah, man, you're right. You got, I'm just, you know, straight up. And even if I'm saying that, I don't mean it. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking something different. It's hard. It's, it's hard. You know, it's, it sounds petty. Maybe it, it sounds a bit small. You know, we laugh, we make light of it. It's so, sort of silly, but here's where it gets heavy. Any one of those things and a thousand others, any one of those things, if it, if it was the only one in your whole life, it acts against the righteousness of God. Any one of those things, even if it was the only one in your whole life and Jesus still had to die you. See, we don't hold that tension very well. Do we? The blessing, the greatness of this blessing of redemption is found in holding two things that are always and simultaneously true. Your sin is way worse than you thought, and God's love is way greater than you thought. It's both and. See, that's where the tension's held. It's simply both and all the time, simultaneously. My sinful choices and selfish actions are hideous and I am totally forgiven. Eternally, completely, totally forgiven. All sin, past, present, and future. I deserve to remain a slave and and I am totally set free. I'm not near, not near as good as I think I am. And I have been declared righteous by the living son of God. I I don't deserve grace. I really don't. I don't deserve grace. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. I don't deserve grace. And God pours out lavish, overabundant grace all over me and you. It's both and. Just both. And, and when we swing from pole to pole, depending on our circumstances, when we swing back and forth, when I, when I do, we miss it. To hold the tension is to experience the depth of the blessing. To hold the tension is to access the surpassing greatness of it. To hold the tension is to allow the blessing to work deeper and deeper into my heart. To hold the tension is to become more of what we already are in Jesus Christ. 
make one comment, one simple short comment about verses 9 and 10, and then we will wrap up. Look at verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He's going to answer what that is. He revealed that to us. He revealed it how? According to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ, with a view to the end, with a view to the proper fulfillment of it. That's all verse 10 is. Here's the end that is revealed by the mystery of his will. That is that all things point to Jesus Christ. All things are summed up in Jesus Christ. That is the full consummation of his kingdom at the proper time. But all things even in the here and now point to Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm not spending time here is because we'll see this over and over in the book of Ephesians and have lots and lots of opportunity to unpack all that that means for those who are in Christ. At the end of the Harlem Globetrotters game, Emma ran down to the court right when the buzzer sounded to get the autograph of her favorite player, Too Tall Hall. I have a picture of Too Tall Hall. I want you to see him. Too Tall is the one in the middle. That's Too Tall Hall. He's five foot two. Emma worked her way through the crowd and up to Too Tall. She grabbed his attention for just a minute. She said to him, I just wanted you to know that I'm the shortest person on my team too. And the too tall pulled her aside. She told me all this after. I didn't even know where she was. She told me all this after. And she pulled her aside. He took off his wristband. He signed it. He handed it to her. And when Emma made her way back to me, I did see this. I, I saw this grin. I said it earlier that I've never seen before. Her countenance was different. Spring in her step was different. It's been different since. Something about that moment filled her up. Here's my prayer for us. Oh, I'll say this too, you know, on the way home. Here's what she said to me all the way home. This is so funny. Literally a hundred times. I wish I'd have been counting. I, I bet it was a hundred times she said that. I just don't know what to say. Th- thanks. I-, I just don't know what to say. 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 I, just, yeah. I don't either. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Here's my prayer for us. My prayer is simply this. My prayer is that when we come to the blessings of all that we are in Jesus Christ, that we would not just scratch the surface, but that we would see more and more of who we are in Christ and that sooner than later for all of us, we would be so overcome with gratitude that we too would be without words at the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we too, because of it, would be changed our lives would look very, very different. That's my prayer. And that's where we're going over the next 28 weeks. I can't wait to share it with you. Let me pray. God, thanks so much for our time together this morning. Thank you so much for the surpassing greatness of the blessing of redemption. May we see it for what it is. May we see the cost that you, Jesus, gave on the cross. And may we see clearly where we get stuck, that we might enjoy more and more of the fullness of it, the fullness of what is already ours, but runs so very deep. May we be a people who see our sin for what it is and the darkness of it. And may we be a people who hold that tension in check with your incredible love for us as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace. See you next week.